Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today I'm talking with Lisa Lambert, who is Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at National Grid. Lisa is also founder and president of National Grid Partners, their venture capital and innovation arm. In addition to this, she is founder and CEO of Upward, a nonprofit organization with a mission to accelerate the careers of executive women. Now, I talk a lot in the podcast about the challenges and opportunities facing utilities, and I think National Grid's a great case study, and I'm really excited to speak with Lisa about this. National Grid's president, present in North America, the UK, and across the whole value chain. And as well as her job today, Lisa brings a fascinating perspective to this with a career in the investment sector in Silicon Valley prior to joining National Grid nearly four years ago. So after that long introduction, Lisa, hello and welcome. Hello. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for joining. Uh, Lisa, three areas I'd like to discuss with you. First, your perspective on the energy sector and the energy transition, given your background in a different industry. Second, your work in leading and driving innovation in National Grid. And third, your work at Upward and what I and my listeners could or should be doing more to help bring the gender diversity we need to the energy sector. So let's get going then. First of all, then, you had a, you were working in a different industry. You've come to energy. You've been in it four years, so maybe you're fully immersed in it. But I'd like to just sort of rewind to when you started in energy and what were your impressions of the energy sector? Yeah, well, actually, I started in the energy sector even before uh, National Grid. When I worked at Intel, we had cross-industry responsibilities. And so I ran the software and services practice and energy and transportation, those were part of the vertical markets that I was responsible for. So I got my introduction to the energy sector at Intel Capital. I was there for 16 and a half years at Intel for 19 years. But when I left Intel Capital, I actually joined a private clean tech venture capital firm called the Wesley Group. So I worked there for a couple of years before making my way over to National Grid uh, and forming National Grid Partners. So I've been in the industry for about, you know, eight to 10 years, steeped mm-hmm. in it, certainly for the last six years. And when I did leave Intel, I left it because I thought we were kind of on the cusp of a, a major energy transition. The, we had co- recovered from the clean tech 1.0 bubble. Uh, so many of the companies that were born during that era, uh, back in the 2000, mid 2000 timeframe, it kind of crossed the chasm, right? And they were moving into clean tech 2.0 and the sector was looking strong, was looking much more resilient. I kind of thought there was a, a renaissance underway for the energy sector and because it was, you- it was a sector that most people thought wasn't that innovative. Yeah. And, and so it was a big part of why I left. And um, I think there are more tailwinds today accelerating this transformation. You know, policy, corporate purchases, and capital formation are all happening right now. And is that what you've found or at your time at National Grid, not specific to National Grid, but the sector in general, have you seen that renaissance well underway? Um, and is it, is it moving at the speed you thought it would move at? Are there more challenges uh, than you, you thought you'd see or more opportunities? I think it's the pace of it 
because it's the energy sector and I work at a regulated utility. And so things don't move as quickly at regulated utilities uh, as they do in a high tech sector, which is where I've spent most of my career. So there, there is a pace issue, but it's probably more in comparison to high tech, which is very fast. Yeah. But I think the ambition is certainly there. Um, I've seen it personally as I've stood up National Grid Partners uh, in the midst of uh, a lot of transformation going on within National Grid and the sector more broadly. I think what's most encouraging is that there were, as I said, a number of companies that made it out of the clean tech bubble bursting back in 2008 into this new era. And, and now there is policy and there is capital formation and corporations are beginning to purchase energy in a way that they haven't before. And so uh, I'm very enthusiastic. I think the most one of the most encouraging things that I've seen of late is this infrastructure package. There's over $500 billion of new infrastructure building. It's the largest bill that we've seen in the sector for decades. And a lot of the capital was allocated to clean energy. So that is a tailwind for sure. You've got $7.5 billion going into EV charging and another 70 plus billion going into power infrastructure. That capital is enormous. Will that drive the pace? Because when I think of pace, um, it is a slow moving sector in comparison to some because of that that regulation. but the pace we need to move at to hit our, our climate targets, I think sometimes there's a disconnect between the pace we need to move at and the pace the industry is moving at. Those tailwinds from uh, that infrastructure funding, do you think they'll help to provide that pace or what do you think will provide that, that pace that we really need? I think it'll help. I don't think it's enough by itself. I think you do still need uh, capital formation in the private markets, which we're beginning to see. I think you need legislation. Uh, there's 400 pieces of legislation that have been written in the U.S. at least, 37 of the U.S. states in 2020 alone. And so the regulation uh, and the legislation is increasing all around reducing emissions. And you see corporations now buying energy. Uh, I, I looked up a statistic and it looks like in 2020, 10.6 gigawatts of renewable energy was procured by U.S. corporations. That's enormous. I think the biggest catalyst right now and what we really need to see and that we didn't see in the clean tech 1.0 era is capital formation. And there is a group that uh, that is called the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, a Europe-based global uh, fund focused on pension funds and investment managers. They've got 1,200 members across 16 countries and they've got $40 trillion under management, all targeting global low carbon transition. And, you know, the uh, the data suggests that we need to be, you know, around 40 trillion dollars in, uh, in investment in this area over the next 20 years. And so this is a good start on that. And I think that's one of the most encouraging things I've seen. Now, are there are there enough homes, do you think, for that wall of money? Because as you, you talked about clean tech in 2000, that a lot of money hit the sector and there weren't really the. I don't think the homes at the time for that money. Do you see there are the investment opportunities that will give a pension fund that safe, steady, secure rate of return, particularly as markets are deregulated, opened up, more competitive? It maybe gets slightly harder to secure that uh, ironclad long-term investment. Yeah, I think that's where the partnership with uh, the venture capital world and uh, with startups will really make a difference. The reason I joined National Grid was to build a capability that helped 
fund these startups. The startups are really doing the innovation. Uh, so the policy is good. The capital formation is good. But there are opportunities out there uh, to invest. And we've invested in 35 companies ourselves across the three mega themes that we call decarbonization, decentralization, and digitization. And you need all three of those mega themes to, to make the net zero world a reality. Uh, but I do think the technology there is there. And I do think consumers are incented. They're motivated. They want to control their own power consumption. They want to they want to have a choice uh, over uh, what and how they consume their power. And in some cases, they even want to sell their power uh, and, and, and monetize it uh, for themselves. So I think the combination of consumer interests and wanting more control plus policy plus capital formation um, are all moving in a direction of this is going to happen. Now, whether it happens by mid-century, uh, time will tell, but there certainly is more of an intellectual will. And now a lot more of the component pieces are there. I think in the clean tech 1.0 bubble, the technology just wasn't there. And certainly the capital wasn't there from the venture capital and pension private equity world, but we're seeing that forming today. So I'm encouraged. What about the business models? And I guess that's different in regulated markets, like many of the US states and Europe, which is less regulated. But I I can see the tech, I can see the consumers, I can see the policies, the, the money, but the bit I see often that has to catch up is the business models um, to deploy that tech, particularly in liberalized markets. Well, it depends on what part of the ecosystem you're you're referring to. I think the physical infrastructure component, I view it as physical infrastructure, digital infrastructure, and market infrastructure. I think the physical infrastructure piece, you know, we know how the assets work. We've been dealing yeah. with these assets for, for, for many years. And so those business models are really unchanged. I think the digital infrastructure is emerging and you do need digital to enable the renewable uh, yeah. build up and the renewable integration onto uh, grid, the grid network. But I think those are, are pretty well-known models. I think the market infrastructure piece, meaning how do you monetize the growth of, of this scaled up enterprise uh, is, is TBD. And yeah, there's still more work to be done there, but I do believe that the momentum is in its, in its favor. Yeah. Um, looking now at National Grid and your work at National Grid, Lisa, my understanding is you've got a number of innovation functions, incubation, uh, corporate venture capital, business development, culture acceleration. Uh, can you talk a bit about where, I mean, I'm sure they're all equally important, so it's unfair to ask you which is most important, but which maybe do you see the biggest challenge for a company like National Grid? Well, I think you know all of these are a bit of a challenge because uh, they're different and regulated businesses run like regulated businesses. And so different is not always ideal. Um, I've got the five functions, innovation, incubation, corporate venture capital, business development, and venture accelerations. And we've had progress in all of them. I think the most visible uh, have been the investments that we've made. As I mentioned, we had four startup investments, uh, four limited partner investments, 35 startup investments. Um, in about three and a half years, which is pretty phenomenal. But we've yeah. also had nine new innovations developed in our innovation center of excellence. We've formed what we call the Next Grid Alliance, which is uh, an alliance of utilities, 70 member utilities across the globe. Our goal there is to get all 150 utilities in collaboration and partnership with each other 
uh, for this clean energy transformation. Um, but we've also deployed 70% uh, of our investments within National Grid. Uh, so we're helping to train the company on what disrupting means and what are technologies that can uh, help improve our operational performance, our efficiency, or some of the best practices that you're going to get from working with startups. So we've had progress on each one. I think probably the most challenging one is always getting the business to consume the technology. So we can make investments because we know how to do that. We can partner with other utilities. But these deployments has been a challenge because part of it is helping them understand why the technology is needed, why they should be working with a startup, and then getting them comfortable with procuring that technology because utilities aren't used to procuring from startups, and then getting to, you know proof of concepts and pilots completed so you can deploy it. That's probably been the most difficult thing of all, of all the things that we've tried to do here in the last four years. And what, what have you learned about that when you look back things that have made the biggest difference or any tips, tricks uh, for uh, or rec suggestions for other utilities who are trying to bring startups they've invested in into their business? I think the, the thing that helped the most was having some fellow travelers, right? Identifying people who were like-minded. You're not going to get the entire organization to move in lockstep and at pace with you know the startup world. But I was able to find people in the different operating businesses who had a like mind. They wanted to see real transformation. They realized that from a technology standpoint, we weren't on the leading edge. We really weren't improving in, in a material way our operating efficiency using the incumbent technologies. They tend to not innovate in the same way that startups do. And so I found a half dozen or so of those fellow travelers. And that's where we did our proof of concepts. That's where we did our yeah, pilot. Okay. And then those half a dozen became a dozen. And those dozen became, you know, two dozen. And before long, you know, the progress that we're making in the businesses that started first was so apparent that, you know, you got other, other uh, interested parties taking a look and seeing how they could help transform their business in the same way. So that that is a key. You definitely want to get people who, uh, are going to walk the journey with you um, and uh, and create some momentum. And I would imagine, well, not only does that gather pace as you described, but my experience of working with utilities is there are more and more individuals in utilities that really see they're they're not only motivated by the money they're earning, they're motivated by making a difference, and they want to help their utilities. They're in, the companies they work with make that transformation to a low carbon economy. So are you seeing more of that within different parts of National Grid that you're working with? That is definitely a part of the culture. Many people come uh, to the energy sector and I think to utilities because they have a personal passion about clean energy and climate. And, and so that is apparent. And it's, it's actually encouraging because even when they face obstacles and when things go slower than they uh, expect and there's more regulation and more process than they would like, uh, their heart keeps them in the game, if you will, right? It keeps them motivated and excited to, to continue to persevere. And so I think that cultural element at National Grid is probably true for all of our Next Grid Alliance members, all the utilities across the globe, that they really do feel passionately about this and they're concerned. They're concerned for their families, they're concerned for their futures. And so the combination of an opportunity because they've got a job that can actually have an impact 
and this emotion that says we really do want to see change because we're really concerned about the future uh, does make for a helpful environment for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, your job's quite wide, Lisa. You're your chief technology officer, chief innovation officer, and president of your venture capital arm. Do you think that helps to have that all joined together? Because if I look at other utilities that Delta E works with, often they're separated out. You'd have a technology officer, you'd have an innovation officer, and a separate venture capital business. So do you think that that's important uh, to, to join yeah. us together? Yeah, the integration is actually helpful. Uh, but we, we've got a view of what's what's happening in the external market, you know, what, what external innovators are doing, what startups are doing. But we're also working very closely with the, the business and our innovation function. Our innovation function is about new business creation. So we're standing up our own startups, if you will, within National Grid, but doing that in conjunction with the operating businesses. So we're working on the problems that they think are real, the use cases that they've identified, and they're working in tandem with them. And so being able to see that view and have that close relationship and bring that into the conversation that we're having with startups. And so we're much more informed, much more intelligent about the real business challenges. Uh, and then we can convey that to the startups and we can use that as our lens for identifying companies that we can invest with and, and partner with uh, is really helpful. And if those functions were separate, I think we'd have less symbiosis, more, you know, less collaboration, less intuition about where we should be going. They really feed each other. They really depend upon each other. And it's true for our incubation function. And it's true for our business development function. We even use it in venture accelerations, which is all about uh, bringing the outside mindset in. How do we train national grid employees who aren't used to working in competitive markets like startups are and being cash constrained like startups are and having a sense of urgency that startups are? Uh, we bring that mindset into National Grid, which which also creates, you know, bedfellows, fellow travelers, if you will, on the journey. So having all those functions together and having that chief uh, level, that C-level title really does make a difference. It gives me influence, gives me visibility, gives me more credibility, and it has helped us get things done quickly. And we've done a lot in, you know, the three and a half years that most of the team has been here. I've been here four years, but I've recruited the team and uh, stood up the organization. And I can say in four years, that's a lot of work. And uh, yeah. it's because I've had this position, no doubt. What about in a, a regulated utility? I often think people that are rightly conservative, they're not incentivized to take risks. Um, electricity is such a critical part of our economy and society that you don't want to take too many risks. So do you, how do you see that? challenge you mentioned the travelers you know those those champions you've identified to help bring innovation into the business but is there this dichotomy i don't know it's the right word but on one hand the need to innovate and do things differently and change and evolve on the other hand not to take risks and to be quite rightly conservative with a small c in how how you run a network yeah it's the biggest challenge the cultural Orientation for utilities is one of structure, safety, order. You know, we're a regulated business, and that's how we run the business. And we need to do that because we deal with products that are very valuable but can be harmful if they're managed inappropriately. And so probably the biggest challenge is we've had is around culture and 
for the, the organization to give itself permission to experiment. I mean, our world is all about experimentation. It's all about taking leaps and trying new ways of working and new ways of thinking, uh, new solutions to old problems. There aren't any incentives for doing that in regulated businesses. There are very few incentives. The regulator is supposed to provide those incentives by setting out innovation capital. But in the end, um, a risk-averse culture is, is more predominant. And so, again, it's finding those fellow travelers. It's yeah. getting people on your side so, so that you can show that taking some risk and doing some experimentation actually does reap a reward, and it can do it without being destructive. But that mindset is a difficult one to overcome, no doubt. And it's uh, it's justified. I mean, the business that yep. we're in, yeah. we better be safe. We better be yep. better be reliable. Yeah, it's a balance, I guess. Um, Lisa, moving on now to the third point I want to talk to you about, uh, your work at Upward. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about who Upward is and what they do? Yeah, so I started Upward when I was at Intel uh, back in 2013. And I worked, of course, in the venture capital and tech world all of my career. And one of the things that's very apparent in venture capital and working with startups and, and in high tech is that there are very few women and people of color. And so, you know, after having worked in this business for many years at that point, I thought now is a good time for me to try to affect change here. And so I conceived of a uh, an idea to have a group of my colleagues, senior level, and uh, my focus was always on the executive level women because there are lots of programs for onboarding young women into business, but there is a ceiling. And you know, for the director level, VP level, uh, folks who are trying to get to that C level, it's really difficult. The numbers show it. Only four percent of the CEOs when I launched Upward in 2013, four percent of the employees were uh, CEOs were women. And only 13% of the executives were women when I launched this back in 2013. And so you can see, though we come in mass uh, at the entry level, it's about 50-50 in the S&P 500, Fortune 500, about 50-50 women and men at the entry level. But as you go up, there's dissipation, right? So there's a leaky pipeline. So I took on that challenge, had an event at my home with some senior level, level executives, female executives, to talk about the problem. And that's kind of when Upward was born. We didn't name it and brand it uh, for a couple of years after that, but uh, that was the beginning. And how's it how's it addressing that challenge or how's it making a difference? Yeah, so in the venture capital world, only 5% of the general partners are women. In the startup world, only 8% of the founders are women. So the numbers are, are bleak. Uh, one of the things I did when I was at Intel was launch the Intel Capital Diversity Fund. And I discovered with that, this is the year after I had launched Upward, but I discovered with that, that once you dedicate capital, we had a $125 million fund, that there are people that are in those classes, female and minorities, who actually want capital, who actually have their own ideas about their startups. We launched the diversity fund and we got 600 business plans in the first two months. Wow. So this mythology. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing, right? This mythology that women and uh, minorities don't, have any ambitions to be entrepreneurs uh, is really a mythology. They don't have access to capital. And were those business yeah. plans not finding their way to other VC funds or were they getting ignored or what? They actually, they were finding their way, but they weren't getting the capital. And, and so if you look at 
the numbers, as I mentioned at the onset, only 5% are women. So 95% of the GPs that are looking at these startups are men. And what do you think they're going to be interested in? Certainly so not whether it's, come from women. Yeah, whether it's a, a known bias or an unknown bias, I guess it's a bias. Um, it is definitely a bias and yeah. it is a problem um, in our industry. And that was one of the things that I was hoping to resolve with, uh, with my work. And, and we did. We did. We, we focused on building a community, a community of, of executive women. Uh, we went from a few hundred members in that first year to uh, over 6,000 members today. A uh, part of our mandate was focusing on building communities so that women could rely on each other uh, for encouragement, for support, for leads, if they were running their own companies, for referrals, if they were looking for a new job. I always say that the uh, life but a, a person's career is their network, and women tend to underdevelop their network. Uh, a lot of that is there just aren't that many senior women for them to access. Uh, uh, but uh, some of it's just we're not investing the time. And so we spent a lot of time building that community, that network, um, and, and creating some dependence and interdependence on each other to help accelerate our careers. That worked really well, and that was the predominant business model for the first five or six years. Uh, we've since expanded the business model to include uh, offering what we call Upward Academy, which is uh, member training programs around leadership development and running a PL, a profit and loss center, uh, uh, strategic decision making, uh, becoming an entrepreneur. So these are member training programs uh, that help them advance their stature and their, their skill set. And then we have corporate programs, which are essentially programs that we sell into corporations to help remove the barriers from them to advance. One of the things we heard from our members is that we're learning a lot, we're developing our skill set, but then we're going back to the same companies and they have the same obstacles. And so why don't you have some programs that help corporations remove those barriers to advancement? And that's, that's really our focus right now, developing our members and making sure the companies uh, have the right policies to recruit and retain and promote the females that they have in there. And so I think you've, you've partly answered my next question is what do you think um, I and our listeners should be doing about that? And I guess there's a, the corporate level, you know, the company level, there's actions that um, we can take. Um, but yeah, what would you like, um, what would your advice be to people listening who are passionate about gender equality, more gender diversity, both for it being the right thing and for the energy transition to be successful. I think we need that diversity. So any particular points you'd like to, to make to our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, be proactive. One of the corporate programs that we have is, is a program that we call Allies in Action. And it was born out of Upward Men, which was an initiative that I launched back in 2019 to complement Upward Women. And Upward Men uh, is all about men coming alongside to help, coming alongside to be allies and supporters of the women in, that, in, their, in their sphere, their sphere of influence. So that would be the first thing I'd say is if you're a male and you have some influence, uh, get involved, you know, mentor some women, sponsor some women, uh, help develop some women. I, I always say that, you know, we have mothers, if you're, if you're a man and you, many of them have wives and sisters and aunts and nieces. And so there are women in their lives and they should care about their future. Um, and the same way that we care about the future of the planet, we should care about the future of 
our women and uh, get involved. And so, you know, get off the sidelines, get yourself involved and you will be amazed. We've launched programs like our university partnership program uh, with large corporations. And it's all about helping large corporations recruit uh, up and coming women from universities, you know, student women engineers, uh, women that are harder to get a hold of uh, because there are fewer numbers. And so having a loyalty program where you train and you mentor and you sponsor and then you bring them on once they graduate um, is huge. And that's all about building rapport, building relationship, building credibility as an employer that cares. So there are things that individuals can do and there are things that corporations can do to really make themselves stand out in a world where you know, women aren't always valued and they certainly aren't attended to um, in the way that their male counterparts are. And I guess that's a challenge in the energy sector as much as it is in the, the tech and uh, VC world as well. Well, it certainly is in the tech and VC world. I think in the energy sector, uh, the demographics are a bit better. I haven't looked at those uh, broadly, but you do see more women. In fact, at our company, we have a large number of women on the group executive staff. So I think women are more drawn to it because, again, they have this passion around climate and, and, you know, we're nurturers, uh, we care for the children, we care for uh, our, our families, and, and we want to care for the planet. So you do see more women there, and there are opportunities. Uh, National Grid is ranked as uh, one of the better employers for women and minorities. And I think the energy sector is better in its performance overall. But we can all step up. We can all move to another level. And so that would be my encouragement. Uh, do look at it. Do spend time on it. Don't give lip service to it, but actually act. And there are a lot of really practical things that you can do to help improve the situation if you'll if you'll make the effort. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. Um, now we're getting to the end of the podcast, so time to bring out the talking new energy crystal ball. And I'll set the dial this week to 2030. And I'd like to ask you two questions, Lisa. Looking back from 2030, what? Um, how will you know you have succeeded in your role at National Grid in 2030? And with regard to your work upward, um, can you give me something that you'd like to, you, you hope we see in 2030 with regard to uh, diversity and equality? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, starting with the energy sector, you know, we've, we've done quite a lot in the four years that I've been here, as I've mentioned. But I think if I dial forward by 2030, I certainly would hope that we will have modernized, uh, modernized our assets and our operations. And, and for me, that means we've kind of perfected how to integrate renewables into the grid reliably and at scale. And maybe we're even using virtual power plant technologies or derms to, to add to our renewable capacity on our networks. That would be a major win because we're moving in that direction. Having assets that are more efficient, uh, enabling technologies like digital twins and artificial intelligence. A number of our startups use those capabilities to help improve the efficiency of decision-making and operational function. So there's evidence of those technologies being deployed in the business. Better capital planning, uh, better project management, all those things help keep the cost down. And our enterprise, which is very asset-heavy uh, enterprise with very high costs if they're not managed, and deliver high quality service. And then, uh, you know, I hope that we're really moving toward the utility of the future, kind of the net zero world that we've all been talking about. And so we have this mindset on renewing our very 
large natural gas business, so green natural gas, renewable natural gas, that we're thinking about options on how to get hydrogen into our networks and, uh, and our, our distribution and transmission. And that we're electrifying more of our assets. We just, at National Grid, just electrified our entire UK business through an acquisition. And so we're very serious about doing that in the UK. And uh, if we, we step up in a, a similar way in the US, I think we can have an enormous impact. National Grid's already known for being one of the leaders uh, of the clean tech movement. And we made some real practical financial decisions around that. So I think seeing more of that would be great. And probably last but not least, I think customer, it's been a big focus for us in our investment strategy to identify solutions that help improve uh, customer experience, that help improve customer engagement. Uh, and so becoming more digital so that we're smarter, more efficient, uh, having best in class cyber solutions as we add more assets to the networks, we need to secure those assets. So those are some of the things that I would hope to see by 2030. And uh, we certainly have invested in enough technologies in those areas that we should be demonstrating those cap capabilities at scale, but that would be my hope. Yeah, okay, you need, you need those travelers to be taking those technologies into your business. Um, and Upward, I guess, get the percentages much higher that you mentioned earlier. Um, and yeah, any any one thing to mention with Upward by 2030? Well, I hope that we have chapters all over the globe. So we have a chapter model, and that was the community was built on a chapter model and on the, the, the strength of our volunteer network. So we've got 17 chapters across the globe. You know, I would love to have 100 chapters across the globe, even 1,000 chapters across the globe. And these these are the local communities where we do our best work. And so that would be uh, a huge win because I think where you have community, you have opportunity for women to get support. And the biggest issue that women face is the lack of support. There just aren't enough women in the companies that we work at at senior levels to provide the mentoring, the sponsoring, uh, just the best practices, how to do career advancement you know, in an effective way. Um, so the more communities we have across the globe, the better. Uh, I would like our memberships to be maybe 100,000 or 200,000 members. We're at 6,000 right now, so that would be another uh, another positive. And then I think real evidence that women are in these operating roles, right? They're in senior level positions. They're in those executive level and C-level roles. That was original ambition, right? Breaking those barriers, removing the ceilings, creating a path for them to get to their highest ambition to achieve their dream um, and to have an impact. So those would be a few things that I would hope to see by 2030. So you, you and your team have got a lot to do in the next nine years then, Lisa, but uh, heading in the right direction. Indeed. Um, well, Lisa, thanks very much for uh, your time. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everyone listening has enjoyed that. And thanks as always for joining the podcast and listening to it and look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode next week. Thanks and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta.com.